Before I get into the announcements, today's service is a Q&A service. So basically what happens is, over the year or so, people have submitted questions about uh, Bible topics, about things going on in society, and how Christians should, should relate to that. And so we're going to be answering those questions today. Now, there are questions that have been previously submitted. However, if you have a question you want to ask live in the service, you're more than welcome to do so, and we will default to any of your questions. So what will happen is, uh, Larry and Keith will be in the uh, on the sides um, with some microphones. So if you have a question, it can be asked nice and loud. Uh, now, just so that you know, you will not be on camera, okay? Um, but we want to make sure that the question gets asked in a nice, you know, audible way uh, so everyone can hear it. Um, so that's going to be happening. So if you want to be thinking about that or working up some courage to ask a question, please feel free to do that. That would be fantastic. Okay, so up here is going to be myself and Pastor Larkin, and uh, we're going to see what happens. I'm going to give Abel all the hard ones. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. Let's see what we get. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start us off with one of the questions that uh, was submitted earlier. Um, uh, yeah, so all you have to do is raise your hand, and then either Keith or Larry will come to you, and then when we're ready, you can uh, just go ahead and just ask your question. We're going we're gonna to see what happens. It should be a lot of fun. So the first question that was given to me was given to me by a friend in Theresa. Um, it's, it's actually, I really like this. The question is, is there such a thing as good pride? Is any kind of pride in the life of a Christian bad? Is it all sin? Or can you have good pride? Is it possible to be proud of something or have pride in a, in a healthy Christian way? I thought that was a fantastic question. You want to, to start out? <laughs> uh, you get on to restream and open up the chat window. Um, so basically, there's a couple different ways of viewing this. If you just think of pride, okay, just um, pride in a negative sense, like a, a person has pride, then no, that there's no good way to do that. But pride comes in a lot of different ways. And you look, look through scripture, um, you know, pride goeth before a fall. And like any other word, especially words that are translated from dead ancient languages into modern English languages, you have to understand the context. And almost always, not, not completely always, but a lot of the times we get confused over a term and we give it a blanket definition. And that blanket definition isn't enough to actually cover all the uses of that word. Pride is one of those words. Um, so pride and proud, we kind of use those. We, we think that they kind of mean the same thing, but they don't. Pride in a negative, sinful way is directed inward. It's directed at you. Your joy of an accomplishment, your joy of an ability, the pride is in yourself. But there's nothing wrong with having pride in another, being proud of another. Any parent ever been proud of your, of your child? <laughs> no. No, as a matter of fact, two of them are for sale right now. <laughs> no, you can 
be proud of accomplishments. You can be proud of what you're doing, but the pride is directed outward. It's not directed at you. So let me give you, let me give you an example. If we, um, uh, let's say we, well, when we built this building, I was very proud of the way the church, I had a lot of pride in the way the church came together to put this building together. We did a lot of this work ourselves. It was, it was really fantastic. That, that pride is directed outward. Now imagine if we flip that around and I was like, this church is so lucky I'm here. Look at what I was able to accomplish. That's sinful. But being proud of the unified efforts of a body is not. So when it comes to that, it depends on the direction that that pride or being proud is flowing. If it's to you, not, not good. If it's to others, good is the best way to say that, uh, at least that, that I can uh, uh, think of at the moment. Cool. All right, so does anyone in the congregation want to open up with a question? I don't want to be the first. Yes, you do. <laughs> he knew he wasn't getting out of it. All right, I'll ask it. Get my Bible out. Go for it, bud. Good morning. Um, explain uh, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit with the only unforgivable sin that's mentioned in the Bible. Thank you. I mean, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Yes, in your opinion, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Awesome. Uh, anybody else? <laughs> That's uh, Abel. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, so there's there are there are so many takes on this. Um, I've heard it explained in so many different ways. Uh, it's it's difficult to kind of pinpoint the um, uh, a singular definition, but what can, I can tell you. In Hebrews, uh, and I can't remember the exact verse, maybe you can pull it up. When Twice in Hebrews it talks about those who have come to the Lord and tasted of the goodness of God, received forgiveness of God, and then have basically rejected it. Now they cannot return to God, uh, and I, I believe it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's referred, it basically referred to it would be a blaspheming against the, the Spirit of God. Um, do you have the exact verse? Go ahead and read it. Uh, in Hebrews 6, 4, it says, For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. There you go. So this idea of no longer being able to receive the forgiveness of God. I don't know about you, but that is frightening to me. And you realize that you can receive the forgiveness of God and then just kick it away like it has no value at all. At all. Um, I relate the blas- blas- blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to that. Uh, and the idea is essentially 
not honoring what God has given you in the way that God has given it to you. Do you understand what I mean? Um, so uh, we talked about this earlier, Jude 1.9, um, in that, that particular verse, when the archangel Michael was, not, was arguing with the devil over the body of Moses, he would not... Um, uh, would you turn to there? He would not basically declare that... that uh, it would, he would not call... I think he wasn't willing to call the, the devil a blasphemous within there. Because that is a that is a judgment left only to God. You understand what I mean? He wasn't going to get. He wasn't going to declare what only God is allowed to declare. Because that would be sin on His part. He's leaving the, the things in the hands of God that are in the hands of God. It's kind of like receiving the the Spirit of God in forgiveness and then deciding that's not enough. That's not enough for you. You need more. You need something else out of life. Being a Christian is not enough. I need something. God's got to do something more for me. And in there you reject from God what is only God's. In my mind, that's, blas- that, that's blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings the will of God, brings the salvation of God, brings the things of God to you. And when we don't accept it, it's not enough for us. We're declaring God insufficient for my own salvation. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's really difficult. Some people say blaspheming the Holy Spirit is dying without getting saved. But that's not what the passage says. So you can do it while you're still alive. You know, so there, it's, 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 a, it's an action that we take against what God has given us already. Uh, and we declare it not enough, not good enough. You know, and it's, it's, it's sad. Um, one of the things that... Uh, this is going to sound horribly controversial, but one of the real difficulties that I personally have with the Catholic Church, and honestly, most, Catholic, most Catholics are completely unaware of this, that I believe it was the Council of Trent, they declared that anyone who believes that you are saved by faith, through, by, by grace through faith, that you are anathema, which means unsavable. And you think about that. Jesus declares that that's how we get saved. But the church took the position that, no, that wasn't enough. You also had to be one of us. You understand what I mean? That's a really dangerous place to be, to declare that what God declares salvation, not enough. Now you need our permission as well. It's hard to, to say that's not blasphemous, but that's also... Not my call, you know. I'm not. I'm not the the angel uh, uh, archangel Michael either. He's taller. <laughs> oh, go ahead. So there was also a question we have uh, ahead of time about Jude one nine, uh, and that whole there's the book of Jude. I recommend you read it soon. It, it takes like thirty seconds. It's just one chapter, um, and there's a lot in there to unpack. Uh, but there's a this whole paragraph that discusses the issue with Michael the archangel starts in verse eight and it says, "Nevertheless, these dreamers likewise defile their flesh, despise authority, and blaspheme glorious beings. Yet Michael, the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil in a debate about Moses' body, did not dare bring an abusive condemnation against him, but said, "The Lord rebuke you." But these people blaspheme anything they don't understand and what they know by instinct. Like unreasoning animals, they destroy themselves with these things. Woe to them, for they have traveled in the way of Cain, have abandoned themselves to the error of Balaam for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. 
So, strong words there, and a strong warning against words. Strong warning against the things that we say. He said that not even didn't, Michael didn't even dare to bring that condemnation against the devil. It is up to God to declare who is and who isn't his. It's up to God to decide when somebody has reached that point, when Pharaoh's heart was hardened to the point that he wasn't going to let the Israelites go. And we read at the end there, they've walked in the way of Cain. Think about what Cain did. Cain decided that what he did was enough. And if God wasn't going to like it, then he was going to take matters into his own hands. Balaam put himself in the place of God and spoke false prophecies against Israel. And Korah's rebellion was all about people who were tired of the authority that God had put in place and decided to take authority into their own hands. And so blasphemy is nothing more than putting ourselves in the place of making that judgment for God. Dangerous. Dangerous. Anyone else? Yes. Hi. With God all-knowing, why did he allow the serpent in the garden? If God is all-knowing, why did he allow the serpent in the garden? Yes. So it's, uh, uh, that, that's actually a very interesting question. Because the question is uh, whether or not God has pre-planned history. It's a Calvinist and free choice question. So for those of you who are not familiar with the argument, there's a, there's a, a branch of theology known as Calvinism. And one of the fundamental tenets of Calvinism is uh, essentially that God has preordained every decision within your life for all time. Now, there's a lot of Calvinists who would say, no, I don't believe that, and that's because they're not actually true Calvinists. <laughs> they, they begin to understand the problem there uh, because salvation, is, we're told, is a free will. So if you go back to the Calvinist argument, that means not only did God cause the first sin, which would mean God is not good, it would mean your own sin, you are not guilty of it. And your salvation, you're not worthy of it. It has nothing to do with you. It takes you out of the equation, and we become actors in a really sick play, in, in, in my opinion. Um, so that question is actually more than just, why did God allow it? The question is, do we have free choice in our walk with God or not? And if you think about this, you've heard me talk about this before. Why does good, why, how can a good God allow evil to exist in the world? And the reality is, evil is not a thing on its own. Evil is the opposite side of something else. You know, it, we have light in this building. If we were to turn the light off, we did not turn on darkness. If you go into your house in the middle of the winter and you turn the heat off, you did not turn on cold. It's simply the opposite side of what is existing. And in the same thing, you cannot have the choice for good without the choice for bad. They have to exist simultaneously, and they have to have as much distance on one side as on the other. So if you were to say, you're allowed to love, but only to this point then you're not allowed to love. Your love is prescribed for you. The maximum amount of love you're allowed to have is to hear. And, uh, but, you know, but, or, or worse, you can love all you want, but you can only hate to hear. That's not, that's not the way it is. It's either choice or it's not. 
So the, the reality is the reason why the serpent was allowed in the garden is because God also allowed grace, love, patience, obedience. Now, if you think about this, um, parents, um, how obedient are your children 24-7? Yeah, there's eight hours in there where they're, they're perfect. Um, you, you, you know they're not, right? Now, let me ask you something. When you're training a child up in the way that they should go, do you put a shock collar on that child, and every time they have a wrong thought, they just... <sighs> and some of you are like, is that legal in New York? Because if it is, I'm, I'm more than willing to purchase one of those. No, you, you don't. You trust that your child is going to obey your word, Right? So in the garden, when, when, uh, when God gave Adam the, the instructions, do not eat of this tree, if you do not have the ability to disregard instructions, then you also do not have the ability to be obedient. If you do not have the ability to be disobedient, then you do not have the ability to be obedient. It has to exist on both sides. So that obedience needed to be challenged. I believe God knew full well that the obedience to his word would be challenged at some point. Mainly because we learn in Genesis chapter 3, I think it's verse 15 or 14, that it was not simply a created being that sinned, that caused the sin. It was Satan himself. It was a fallen angel. Basically, for lack of a better phrase, possessing this particular beast. You can see that in the curse, where God first curses Satan and then the animal, then the woman, then the man. So it was the devil himself bringing that accusation. The accusation was actually pretty interesting. Did God really say? Which is the same sin that he tries to get us to commit today. Did God really say? We're challenging the authority of the word of God. So that serpent was nothing more than the first earthly challenge to the word of God. And you had two choices. You could obey or not obey. I think God had an idea of where we would be right now. And I think he also knew he had to allow it to happen. Because you have to, you have to have, you have to give people the ability to fail if you want to give them the option to succeed. It has to exist on both sides. You know? So, uh, uh, you know, your parents who like to bubble wrap your children, please stop. <laughs> You know, they, they need to experience difficulty, heartache, you know, they need to get their heart broken. They need to fall down every now and then. It's not bad for them to come home with road rash. It may have been a wild ride. Who knows? You know, um, but we, we have to have the ability to understand life. And that means both pain and joy at the same time. So hopefully that was a long winded answer to a relatively short question. (laughs) Here's a short version. Nobody wants to be loved because they're the only option. Even God. God gave us the option. God gave us free will. He didn't want to be loved in a vacuum. He didn't want to be worshipped just because he created us. He gave us the choice so that we could choose to love him. And that love is that much more meaningful. Yes. Um, Larry is on his way. Yes, if there has been someone attending the church... And they have seen that our church is a Bible-believing, uh, pastor-preaching <laughs> gospel. 
and they are interested in becoming a member, what would your instructions be to them? Oh, sweet. Mail the check to... No, I'm kidding. Um, so, uh, <laughs> membership in, in, in the church is, is an interesting thing. There's only a few states in the country that actually require membership um, in order to be a licensed nonprofit organization. That's the only reason why membership exists within the church. In New, and New York State is one of those, church, one of those um, states. So basically, this is the way it goes. We have to have an active membership role, and then we have to have business meetings and all this other fun nonsense. Um, and so it, this is what happens. A couple times a year, we have a dinner. We invite people who would think about becoming members to the dinner. You don't have to bring any food. We'll, we'll, we'll prepare food for you. Um, and basically, we sit down and we go through our constitution line by line so that you fully understand what it means to be a member. And then at the end of the dinner, you can take the membership pack at home Sign it and return it, or not. It, it's really that simple. Um, well, I mean, other than you know, a uh, 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 credit rating report, a blood sample, and then a lie detector test. But uh, but those are those are little sim- simple things. You know, silly, uh, <laughs> uh, no, that's really all it is. Uh, that's really all it is. Um, we try to keep it very very uncomplicated. Um, and uh, the requirements on the members are actually really simple. Show up to the meetings and vote. That's all it is. Uh, other than that, that's all, all that we got to be doing. Now, we should be having another membership meeting pretty soon. I mean, COVID kind of messed a whole bunch of stuff up. Um, and a lot of things have, uh, uh, have changed over the last couple of years. But uh, it's time to start getting back on track. And uh, uh, so that would be the, the short answer to that question. Yeah. Next question. Talking about the garden with our oldest, she would like to know if Satan was ever man or always an angel. Was Satan ever man or always an angel? I'm tempted to be funny there, but I'm going to... Sorry, ladies. He was always an angel. (laughs) Um, He he was... (laughs) But he's been elected to office several times. (laughs) Yes, uh, he was always an angel, um, and and the first and his mistake was to challenge the authority of God. Some believe he was it was an archangel. Some believe that uh, I've heard some teaching. I think it's Robert Morris that taught on um, Lucifer, Michael, and Gabriel as kind of the main three. And Lucifer fell. He decided that being an angel wasn't good enough. So, yeah. Yep. Awesome. Um, okay, so here's a here's a. Um, uh, uh, a question I'll toss to you. Uh, does God still heal today? Yes. Next. Um, he does. <laughs> uh, sometimes he does supernaturally, and, and sometimes we overlook the way he heals naturally. Uh, he created humans as inquisitive, logical beings who can study and learn and create, um, and create things like penicillin. I mean, if you look into the discovery of penicillin, that's that's got to be God-ordained. Like, he left some bread or something out, and it formed some bacteria, and he turned it into a drug. Like, there's no... Either he was on drugs already, or that was supernaturally ordained that, that he would discover that. God has put it into our minds, that inquisitive nature to study and learn and create and develop these methods for healing. And so we, we look at successful cancer treatments. We go, oh, that was just the doctors. Well, that 
That was the doctors through a lot of inspiration and discovery that God placed into their hearts. Um, but yes, he still does supernaturally heal. There's plenty of testimonies of where he has uh, family members that have been healed. Um, does he always choose to? No, and that's the hard part. He doesn't always choose to. Sometimes we've got to suffer with it. Um, Paul did. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't have enough faith, as some have said too. Um, it just means it's not God's time. Anyone ever heard the old statement, if you pray to be healed and God doesn't heal you, there's something wrong with you? Anyone other than me ever, ever, ever heard that? You know? <laughs> I'm not raising my hand. No, that's not happening. Uh, it's a common old school expression of the gifts of the Spirit. You hear a lot in more of the hyper-Pentecostal circles. Now, just to be clear, this is a charismatic Pentecostal church. Um, but we are not even remotely close to the hyper-Pentecostal side of thing. And, and all that means is that we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are available today, that the offices of the church are available today. That the Holy Spirit didn't stop after the after the after the uh, original twelve uh, disciples died off. That, that all those gifts are still available today. The difference is how you employ them, and healing is one of those is one of those gifts where people say, if you want to be healed, you need to find a healer. Well, he's the healer. We're just the vessels. Any one of you can pray for someone, lay hands on them, and 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 they may be healed. But you also may pray for them and lay hands on them, and they may not be healed. It's got nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with his plan. And sometimes his plan is to put you through something so that you learn. I'll give you a quick example. When I hurt my neck a few years ago, people prayed for me to be healed because they knew I was in a lot of pain all the time. And over that, uh, and I, I, for a while, I was just like, you know, I, I don't get it, Lord. I've been serving you for, for, you know, like 20 years at the, so over 20 years at the time. You know, I'm, I'm pastoring a church. I'm doing everything that I can. Why are you not healing me? And I was getting very kind of depressed about it because about halfway through it, I got hooked on painkillers. I'd never experienced that. But here's something that I figured out. God did heal me through the hands of the doctors. But what I learned through that process about being chemically dependent on a drug, the sympathy of people going through it, and Samantha can testify to this, there were a couple of times where I missed a dose of my painkiller. I took half of what they actually prescribed, still got hooked on them. I missed one, and within an hour of missing that, I would have done almost anything to get rid of that feeling. And suddenly I realized... I'm beginning to understand what I thought I understood about drug addicts. I wasn't there, but I had a naive, ignorant understanding of what they went through that I would not have gotten had I not gone through it. So you get to the end of it and you realize what the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. He taught me something through my, through my own pain. Could he have healed me? Yep. Did he? Nope. Was I eventually healed at the end? Yep. Would I go through it again knowing what I would have learned? Yes. And that's the thing. We have to trust the plan of God even in our suffering, especially in our suffering. If you, if you can learn to trust God in your suffering, then trusting him in the plenty is easy. But it's when it gets difficult. That's when 
the rubber really meets the road. Anyone have a question? Yes. Come on down. Got two. Can someone lose their salvation? And if so, what are some examples of how and where their heart is? Now, the popular view is no, but the biblical view is yes, you can. Um, Salvation is not something you earn. It's not something you make. It's not something you possess. Salvation is something that is granted to you for a life following in the path of Christ. It's not yours till the end. But people will say, well, if you, lo- you can't lose your salvation because if you do, you were never really saved. But same passage that Abel read earlier. Go ahead. It says in Hebrews 6, For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word and the powers of this coming age, and who have fallen away, because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. So these are people that were once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word. Companions with the Holy Spirit, okay, tasted God's good gift. He's talking about those that have experienced the salvation and grace of God. And have walked away. So it's absolutely possible. Hebrews tells us so. Um, it's not fun to think about. Because then everybody goes. Could that be me? Yes it could. Which is why Paul tells us. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's a process. It's a process that's evidenced. Through the fruit in our lives. James also tells us that faith without works is dead. Show me your, show me your works. Without your faith. And I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith has to be walked out. It's that fruit that is the evidence of the salvation. And if that fruit dies, if that root dies, we can absolutely fall away. It's a process. When I came to the Lord too long ago, uh, there was a very common trend going going through the church. Probably you guys... Some of you have probably experienced this. You go to a meeting, you go to a revival, there's an altar call, and everyone comes up front, and they get prayed for, and it's awesome, you have a wonderful experience, and then you get up, and you go back to your life, and nothing else happens. That went on for a very long time. I think it goes all the way back, in the United States, it goes all the way back to, the, to Azusa Street Revival back in 1911. This became a very common practice among more charismatic circles. I mean, there's another side of the church that's called Reformed theology that completely just taught against that idea all the way. I said, no, you can't leave people in that. You have to pull them in and disciple them because that altar experience is not enough. And this war kind of happened within the church it's still actually going on today. They're still very, very much split on, on, on this today. Um, but the problem is you cannot maintain your faith from that experience alone. You can't. 
take a seed, go out in your yard and just plant it in the ground. Just take your finger and just shove it in the ground. There's a good chance that at some point that thing's going to grow, but it will not thrive. It will probably come up and die. You got this parable of the sower. There is a point at which you get up from the altar and that, and that spiritual high of being released from these burdens that were in your life kind of carries you for a little while. But I guarantee you at some point in time, life is going to get up and smack you in the face and, and, and come back. You're going to bring you back to reality. And that's the moment that the decision really gets made where, where you have to decide, am I going to take the hard road? Or am I going to take the easy road? Am I going to follow in the footsteps of God's word, no matter what, where it takes me and what's going on? Or am I going to follow in the footsteps of the path of man, the path of least resistance, the path of embracing everything that society brings at me and somehow giving it a Christian name? Or am I going to follow in the footsteps of Christ? It becomes really, really difficult at that moment. But that, I, in, in my opinion, that's the dividing line between a and I hate the way this sounds, but there's only one way to say it, a real Christian and a religious Christian. A religious Christian is someone who wants everything from God, but they don't want to give up anything that they have. A real Christian is someone who will give up everything they have for God and will take whatever is brought to them. It doesn't matter. The process doesn't matter. I don't need to be rich. I don't need to have a big house. I need to have a nice car. I just need to be right with God. Everything else will work itself out. As opposed to, I don't mind being a Christian, but I really, really want to have money and nice things. There's, there, there's a difference between there. Oh, and I want everyone to get along with me, and I don't want anyone ever to be mad at me. Because that's realistic. You know? So there's a point at which we can just let go of what God has given us. It's a terrifying uh, thought. I was thinking of the parable of the sower, too. I was already moving there when George mentioned it. There's those that, the seed that fell on the rocky soil. And Jesus says that that is like... Um, where are we? The one son on rocky ground. This is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but is short-lived. When pressure or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he stumbles, falls away, and dies. And Scripture tells us that their condition is worse than the first. Um, because... Not only has that plant died away, but it it took root at first. The roots just didn't go deep. And now it's soaked up some of the nutrients from that soil. And there's less for it to take hold of if the seed is cast again. A person has become callous towards the word. Uh, And so it's very dangerous to to just focus on conversions with no discipleship. Focus on confession with no repentance, with no depth. So I brought, <laughs> I brought up with me a reader's edition Bible. It has no chapter numbers or verses, <laughs> which makes it really hard to cite the reference. But this is from Genesis chapter 15. When you, when you think about losing your salvation, it's not only possible for a Christian to walk away from faith. It is possible for a nation to drift so far away from truth. This is going to sound completely crazy that God can no longer reach them. They've embraced so much evil that they are no longer open to the things of God. Now, check this out. This comes from Genesis chapter 15. It says, when it came to pass and the sun went down and it was dark, and it, uh, 
that behold, there appeared a, uh, a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces of the offering that Abraham had, uh, Abram lay, had uh, laid out for God. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying this. Listen. Oh, wait a minute. I'm, I'm in the wrong spot. Um, now the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, horror, a great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Talking about the Egyptian captivity. And he will, uh, and will serve them and they will be afflicted 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they will come out with great possession. That's the Exodus. Now listen to this. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. Now listen, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He's talking about the land of Canaan. Basically saying your, your descendants are going to come back to where they are now, but I'm going to keep you in captivity until the people are, that are here are no longer reachable by me. This proves a couple of things. One, that there was an organized system of faith before the Israeli nation existed. There was a way to worship God and an understanding of the truth of God before Israel existed. I mean, you need to understand that. And at the same time, there is a point at which a nation can drift so far from God, the only thing that remains for them is judgment. Talk about losing your salvation. You can get to a point as a country where God won't even try to save you. That's how far you've gone. It's horrifying. Horrifying. So that's why we press in. That's why Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. A disciple is one who is committed to the teaching of. Not simply committed to the benefit of. Now that I'm part of the church, I get to go to heaven, right? Mm, Do you? I had a gym membership once. Yep. That worked out well. Yeah, I didn't. (laughs) This... Oh, that's loud. This goes a couple questions back to when you were talking about healing. Um, what is the biblical view on like alternative forms of healing, such as like I don't know if you're familiar with, I may not say it right, Reiki, Reiki. It's like an energy healing, yeah, um, and like meditation and stuff like that. Like, what is the yeah biblical view? If a Christian like swears by that, um, how, how is that viewed? Um, so there's, there's a lot of moving parts to that. Um, so here, here's, here's a very, uh, um, a very plain reality. Everything that is alive today, every, every, every molecule, every atom has a vibration. It's, it's just the truth. Every atom in your body is vibrating right now. Um, I can't remember exactly what it's, what, what it's called. Um, but, uh, to give you an idea, when our astronauts first began to go into space, they would leave the atmosphere and that, that, vib- that vibrational factor on earth, the entire earth is vibrating at the same time, was, was no longer available to them. And they started experiencing sickness, headaches, body aches, because they, that they had moved away from that. Um, so what they ended up doing is it's in the, in the, in the, the space capsules, there's actually a device that mimics that vibration, those vibrational waves and it solved the problem. So there is a real truth to the healing effects of that, bringing things into alignment. Now, personally, I don't have an issue with someone exploring God's natural processes for healing. I'm not, I don't have an issue with that. The place where it gets weird 
is that the um, the new age processes, the new the new age belief systems, have kind of hijacked that and turned it into a very pagan process. You know, where you like, you know, put a put a quartz crystal under your chin and hum. You know, it's just I was a pagan, so trust me, I went through this. It was you you feel like you're getting getting this energy. There is there is a reality to feeling better, but I seriously doubt if those are lasting healings or simply a placebo effect. Um, I, I just I just don't don't believe it. Um, there are practices that are deemed uh, unnatural through scripture, seeking witchcraft, um, and essentially what that comes down to is declaring that the power to heal is now yours. That's that's the, the big difference. So people are searching alternate healing methods. You know, food is an alternate healing method. You know, uh, for for if, if if any of you have body aches, have a hard time sleeping, things like that. Here's an idea: lose your microwave. Some of you are thinking, not a chance. Uh, drink water. You know, water does not come in a in a, in a you know uh, uh, in, a, in a bottle with bubbles. It's water. You know, granted, there's water in Pepsi and Mountain Dew. Doesn't count. Okay? Cut the sugar out of your diet. Try eating things that are healthy. Your entire physiological uh, processes will change because we're doing what God wants us to do with our body, giving you eating the food that he asked us to, uh, 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 to, to partake of. Um, if you want to try the healthiest diet, the most biblical diet known to man, I hate the idea that I'm going to say this. It's a strict vegetarian diet. Do you know that we were not created to eat meat? We were given every plant and herb for food, not each other. Uh, it was only after the fall that we began to eat meat. Uh, and actually, the, the, the one time where God said, kill and eat, was after Noah had the first barbecue, after the ark landed on Ararat, and he offered up a burnt offering. I think God just smelled it and was like, that's delicious. So you can eat that now. Um, no, we were already fallen, so it really didn't make any difference. But we were never designed to eat the, for lack of a better phrase, the crap that we put in our body right now. You know, there are more preservatives in the average American's body today. Actually, I should say it this way: there are so many preservatives in the average American's body today that it takes your dead body seven years longer to decompose. <laughs> Yuck! It's disgusting. But that's what we're doing to our bodies. Um, so when you talk about alternate healing, my first thing would be try doing things God's way first. Uh, I wouldn't send anyone to a Reiki uh, healer because they are, by definition, pagan in their practices. Everything's about them and their understanding. It's not about God. So I would say come back to God's way first and see what happens. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, food also affects your mental health. Absolutely. Yep. If you're having a hard time concentrating, you're getting depressed, check your diet. Do you sleep? A lot of people who are dealing with mental illnesses, honestly, they just don't take care of themselves. That's why you're having the issue. So start, put your body and put your life back to where God wants it to be first, uh, and then see what happens from there. Awesome. Okay, so the last question, and I saved this for last on purpose, because uh, I'm going to run out of the room right afterwards. Um, no, so uh, we got asked this question quite a while ago. Uh, it's been asked again online. Um, and the question is, uh, as a Christian, what should we do about this Roe versus Wade argument? 
you know, no controversy here, right? Um, and it's, it's, a, it's an extremely valid question. For those of you who don't know the Supreme Court right now, if you, if you don't know, you've been living under a rock for a while. Um, but basically what's happening is the Supreme Court right now is going back to essentially overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, the thing about this is causing so much issues in our world right now is most people have no, in our country right now, is most people actually don't even know what this even means. People are yelling and screaming, they're going to they're gonna, uh, make abortion illegal. They're taking away their uh, women's rights. And this is uh, all of this, all this, uh, this nonsense. Here's the reality of what will happen legally if that is overturned. It does not make abortion illegal. All it does is it takes the legality out of the hands of the federal government as an overlord for the country and puts it back in the hands of the states where it belongs. The reason why this is being overturned right now is because Roe versus Wade, almost unanimously, as far as the Supreme Court goes, never should have passed to begin with. And this is why. Items that are not clearly delineated in the United States Constitution are not supposed to be in the hands of the federal government. They're not supposed to protect those rights. They're supposed to protect the rights of things that are clearly delineated in the United States Constitution. We are not America the nation. We are the United States of America. We are not a democracy. We are a representative republic. People don't understand this. The rights of the states, the whole reason for the Constitution was to protect the rights of the people of the states against what could be considered an elected monarchy. So all this does is it takes the authority to declare this legal or illegal out of the hands of the federal government and puts it back into the hands of the states. So the people of the states can decide for themselves what they want to do. Now, in the long run, this is not going to make abortion better. My personal opinion is it shouldn't be available at all. What it does is it opens up the states to go beyond. Just to give you an idea, New York has declared itself an abortion sanctuary now. There are organizations in New York that will bus people in to make sure it happens. Uh, was it Amazon who has declared? Um, Amazon, yeah. yeah, Amazon, Tesla, Levite is going to pay their employees to go and have it done. Amazon is up to $2,000 for an employee to go have an abortion, which is amazing to me. Pretty sure contraception is cheaper. You know, if you want, if you want to make a choice for your sexual reproduction, why not start there with just a good choice? An even better choice would be, I don't know, wait till you're married. I know that's very controversial today, but weird. Doing it God's way again. But a lot of these states, it's not going to make abortion, uh, the, the states that are more uh, uh, embracing of it, it's it, like in New York, it's not going to make it less available. It's going to make it more available and to a bigger extreme. New York and California right now have uh, uh, abortion freedom up to the moment of birth, and both states are now debating 
how long after birth does that parent have the right to abort the child? And now, and they're not talking minutes or hours, they're talking weeks and months. This is the issue. Now, this is a huge victory in the fight for life. It really is. But don't get it mixed up. The reason why you're seeing the political explosion right now is because because once abortion is no longer a federal issue, Planned Parenthood loses out on $500 million a year. That's the issue. That's the only reason why Planned Parenthood is throwing the fit about this. They're going to lose a half a billion dollars a year in federal funding, your tax dollars. So yes, this is a victory for the life, but don't think too much is going to, don't think more is going to happen than what is. This does not end the discussion. It can actually make this far more difficult down the road. And as Christians, we need to be aware of that and we need to be ready to answer these questions. You know, um, people who are stuck in that decision, it's a horrible place to be, um, you know, uh, I experienced it from the guy's side a long time ago. Many of you know this. I should have a 30, 32-year-old daughter, I think, at this point. I don't because of abortion. And it was this decision made without really my consent. But, you know, it's kind of funny how you talk about the rights of one parent but not the rights of the other. You know, so this is, this is, this is a huge issue. And we need to be not only dead set on our view that God is never going to be okay with abortion in any way, shape, or form. Any way, shape, or form. So no matter, no matter how that child was conceived, it wasn't the child's fault. So killing that child is not a viable answer. There are other options. Adoption. You know, there, there are other, there are other ways to, that, that this can be handled. Death does not need to be one of them. Um, but as a Christian, we have to be sensitive to this. We need to be very welcoming to, uh, not welcoming, but understanding to people's positions. We should not be condemning people who make a choice that we don't agree with. Because you know what? God still loves them and they can still be saved. God still loves them and they can still be saved. Even after those decisions. So let's not push them so far away from the truth of God that they're no longer reachable. It's a difficult place to be, but it's an important uh, piece to understand. At the very least, it should make us realize how important our elections are. Um, the decision, if it goes through as the opinion states, is five to four. Five judges in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade, four against. Three of those judges were put in place under Trump's um, presidency. Okay, and, and whatever your opinions on Trump, there were Trump appointments, and they were rammed through, they were pushed through the Congress under a Republican Congress. If that Congress flipped that presidency didn't go that way, there's a good chance we'd be dealing with different justices now. And now that the opinion is coming back to the states to legislate on, it's up to our state legislature. It's important that we vote in every single election. Because what we say, what we choose to put in place matters. Whether whether we like it or not, whether you like the decision or not, your voice can make a difference. We we have believed the lie for too long, on a related note, that the issue of abortion is fuzzy, is ambiguous. Some will try to say, well, we're not clear on when it's a life. Yes, we are. 
95% of doctors surveyed agreed that life begins at conception. 90% of them were atheists. And the overwhelming majority of them were pro-choice. There's a moment when something exists where the moment before it didn't exist. And nothing grows unless it's alive. The moment of conception is the moment of life. Abortion is not about a clump of cells. It's about a choice. And it's about a a person choosing to serve themselves rather than their child. Imagine I chose to go to a casino. And I walk in and I sit down at the table. And I put my chip in. And I play a hand or whatever I'm doing. Roll the dice. And I play another. And I play another. And I play another. And eventually I've lost my mortgage payment. I've lost more than I can afford to lose. It is not the responsibility of the casino to absolve me of my debt. Because I made choices that led me to a decision that I was uncomfortable with. The, tr- the, the real choice in abortion, the real, the real thing that's happening is the person, the, the mother or sometimes the father too, is deciding that they don't want to live with the consequences of their choices. And as George said, choose earlier. Choose to abstain. Choose to protect. Whatever. Abortion is a 100% selfish decision. It's a decision that I don't want to deal with the consequences that I've made, of of the choices that I've made. And I'm going to take it out on somebody else. There's no redeeming that. There's no excusing that. There's, um, There's forgiveness, don't get me wrong. But there's no justification for that. I have a sister that I haven't met. She's had nine pregnancies and three children. She contacted me about one. We, she reached out to me through Facebook, and she had gotten pregnant. She, it was after her third. She, was in, uh, she had three kids with three different parents. And she was locked into where she was living because of custody arrangements with those three different fathers. And she was living with this guy, and she wasn't sure if she wanted if he wanted to have the baby that she was pregnant with, she wasn't sure if she wanted to have the baby she was pregnant with. She didn't want to tie herself into another custody arrangement if they broke up. And so she made the rash decision to have another abortion. Come to find out a couple weeks later in discussions with this guy that they actually wanted to keep the baby. But they never actually talked about it, and so she made a rash decision for her own convenience. And I have one less niece or nephew. But at the same time, we shouldn't absolve ourselves of the responsibility. What are we doing to begin this conversation, to begin compassion towards these people that are struggling, who don't know if they can afford or find baby formula, who don't know if they can raise another child? Are we willing to help? Are we willing to have that conversation? There's lots of sides to it, and everybody in the issue deserves compassion. 
But it starts by making the right choice, by making the choice to serve somebody else rather than ourselves. Yeah, I talk to a lot of parents who uh, spend more time talking to their kids about making sure they know if they're going to be sexually active and still in the house. Just make sure I know, because I want you to be safe. Instead of, uh, no, not under my roof, not until you, no. no. See, we're we're not teaching um, biblical sexual ethics. We're teaching safe sexual expression. And the schools are doing this too. In in some schools, even schools in our in, in our area, uh, uh, as early as sixth grade, a girl can go to go to go to to school, talk to the nurse, have an abortion scheduled, done, and back, and the parents never even know. They call that a right. No. When did we make the flip? You know, and I want to make sure if, if anyone's here, if any of the ladies are here, or even even the guys are here who have been been through that process, there's no we're not condemning you. There's no con, there's no condemnation here. We just need to understand that sometimes bad choices are made, but that doesn't mean that they were that we can just you know wash them away. You know, there's forgiveness that's available there. There's grace that's available here, but we need to stand firm on the irrevocable truth of the standards of God. And those standards are life is always, should always be the choice. The other should never be an option. You know, there's forgiveness there. Let's 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 move on and, and, and go forward. But let's make sure we're doing it in a way that is God-honoring in our life, in our marriage, in our families, all of them. The issue that we discussed last week uh, that George spoke on, gender identity, is entirely isn't entirely separate from this issue. The connecting factor is that God created you, that God created your child, and he created you on purpose, and he created your child on purpose, and he designed you the way that you are, and he designed your child the way that they are, for a reason. And instead of rejecting that, instead of hating that, it's time to push into him and seek who he's designed us to be and what he's called us to do. Because he has a purpose for each and every one of you. And he's willing to reveal it to you if you press into it.